It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Vitaly Kolesnik is Director of European Research at Research Affiliates Global Advisors. As of March 31st this year, $168 billion in assets are managed worldwide using investment strategies developed by research affiliates. Having headed up research affiliates' equity research efforts at their headquarters in California, Vitaly moved to London, now spearheading the company's research agenda in Europe and developing new relationships in the region. Vitaly starts by assessing the macroeconomic environment, covering inflation, monetary policy, the supply squeeze, and his recession outlook. Next, we dig into equity markets. Vitaly provides priceless insight into the growth-to-value rotation before considering quality and how he defines a quality stock. With company examples and actionable analysis of current markets, it's a fascinating interview. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Vitaly. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. So whereabouts are you talking to us from? Uh, from from our office in London. Yeah, fantastic. Great. Just around the corner from me, we're based uh, by Liverpool Street. So I will start with a question that won't necessarily fit within the linear structure of the rest of the interview, but it will hopefully give listeners a, an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. Um, and sanctions um, were, were always, or at least probably on the cards, I think it would be safe to say, once Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, with Russian exports such a significant constituent of the West's consumption basket, can they be sustained long term, do you think? What consequences will befall the global economy if that's not the case? There are several layers to this question. So first, can they be sustained in principle? Of course, yes. Uh, now, what would it mean physically? So uh, big consumers of Russian energy are in Europe. Uh, and uh, countries like Germany heavily depend on receiving gas from Russia. And mm-hmm. uh, if they are not going to receive gas, well, uh, what will happen then? Well, uh, several things. So first, they will probably have in balance less uh, energy. And they, they will, uh, the energy prices will go up, uh, the gas prices will go up, and there will be some rationing of natural gas available to different types of consumers. Now, uh, also, I think to fully accommodate the significant reduction of consumption of Russian energy, I think in the short term, uh, countries like Germany will have to do a few drastic changes, like, for example, reopening some of the coal burning for power generation. Mm-hmm. Also, it could be quite inconvenient for many people individually. People may have to maintain lower temperatures in their houses through winter, and that could be quite uncomfortable. And that's where I started in principle. Can it happen in principle? Yes. Uh, And the big question perhaps is how long will and how much will the voters tolerate it and politicians, I guess, will, uh, will be willing to kind of stop or to maintain certain level of barriers up to a point where the voters would would permit it. Now, that's that's the short term, but mm. I, I think uh, in the long term, regardless of how much reduction in the short term will happen, I think uh, we are seeing, a, we're in a situation where Europe has had a pretty abrupt awakening uh, to the fact that they're very dependent on uh, on oil and gas from Russia. And I think inadvertently, Putin may have made one of the things that generations of green politicians couldn't do. I think Europe will take a lot of the steps towards the renewable energy. Uh, I think probably countries will start using and coming back more to nuclear power. But again, that uh, that to be seen. But in the end of the day, Putin may have inadvertently uh, make uh, Europe a lot greener in the long term than he wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting about kind of the longer term trend in renewables and even a kind of medium term uptick in nuclear energy as well. 
Uh, we'll dig into a few of those topics uh, later on. But first, let's circle back and cover some of your career history to date, uh, just as a way of, I suppose, introducing you to some of the listeners. Uh, you are Director of Research for Europe at Research Affiliates Global Advisors, based here in London, as you said. So talk to us just about what a typical day consists of for you, if such a thing exists, of course. I, I think it's, uh, there is no typical day. It depends on <laughs> what's uh, on the agenda. But I guess I can probably average over multiple days. And I would say that uh, probably my, a lot of my activity is split between conducting research, uh, between uh, communicating within the firm, both here in London and with, uh, with our colleagues in California and other places. Uh, and then finally, communicating outside. That's exactly what we're doing right now, but uh, also I'm communicating quite frequently to our investors, to consultants. And uh, so these, uh, these three activities are, I wouldn't say kind of equally split, but close to probably. Well, I guess probably research is, it does take more than uh, more parts than the other two, but all of these take a significant part of my time. Uh, and then, of course, when I'm doing research, then all the stages of research, so research discussions, discussing interesting other research uh, my colleagues have seen, my collaborators outside the firm have seen, talking uh, and then working on the projects, conducting analysis, discussing results, discussing future directions, writing things and um, talking how best to present it for the readers and uh, listeners. Yeah, fantastic. It's really interesting to get an insight in, into kind of what your day-to-day -day looks like. And um, having read before the call, you were previously based in California, at research affiliates sort of headquarters, I suppose. You were leading the equity research team there. So how do the two roles differ? It, I guess, you know, there's obviously more of an explicit focus on equities in the previous role, but anything else stand out to you in terms of differences? Well, part of the reason for, uh, for my move from California to London and when, by the way, when I mention it to people in London, people just look at me almost like I've made some uh, some atrocious um, <laughs> uh, religious blasphemy, or whatever yeah. it's called. Uh, uh, how could I have moved from California to yeah. London? Yeah. Uh, well, um, the big reason for the move was to be closer to our European investors. And also we've, uh, we've observed that a lot of the factory investing related conversation has a pretty uh, interesting kind of direction, distinct direction in Europe, where in certain aspects, it may be half a step or, a, or sometimes even a step ahead of what's happening in, in the United States. Uh, and so it uh, made a lot of sense uh, to have a dedicated research uh, presence here in Europe to keep our finger on the pulse uh, of what is going on. So, for example, uh, ESG conversation, uh, as an example, is quite a bit more advanced in Europe com compared to the United States, for example. Uh, and we're seeing that uh, many of the same conversations are now uh, happening in the States of what we've seen uh, a few years ago happening here. And the same was true more generally about factory investing. So uh, so that's uh, that's just an example of the idea for the move. Now, also uh, coming back to that blasphemy uh, question, uh, I, I guess part of the reason also is I've been in California for, for a pretty long time before that. I went to UCLA for my PhD program uh, and then I was working in uh, research affiliates. Well, by now I've been working uh, for, for for about 15 or 16 years now. Uh, so a so big chunk of that, more than a decade, was in California. So I was, I was quite willing uh, to take a little bit of change of scenery and, and having a little bit of season instead of always sunny California was actually interesting. I mean, absolutely. It certainly seems like a big change of pace. But um, yeah. You know, certainly, certainly not dull, uh, anything but in London. So uh, hopefully you're enjoying it so far. Um, let's move on to some of the articles and the awards you've, you've won as a result of those, those research papers. Uh, you co-authored articles that have been recognized for several awards, including four Graham and Dodd Scroll Awards, a Financial Analyst Journal Reader's Choice Award, and a Graham and Dodd Top Award for What is Quality? 
uh, which I'm going to dig into a bit later. But and you know, perhaps it was the aforementioned paper. But can you give us a quick pricey of your favourite article today, one you're particularly proud of? There were two articles that we've written about a decade ago. One titled "A Survey of Alternative Equity Index Strategies," and another one which is very highly related to this one. Uh, it, we, so this one was in FAJ. We, we also wrote a related and um, kind of expanding on that same article in JPM, Journal of Petroleum Management, titled Surprising Alpha from Monkeys, Monkeys and Other Upside-Down Strategies. I think these two uh, articles, uh, I have uh, quite, um, uh, I think they were quite cool and probably one of my favorites because Essentially, uh, these two articles helped industry uh, create the concept uh, of smart beta. So, for example, that article, Alternative Equity Indices, Index Strategies, uh, kind of the name itself suggests that uh, there, there are these alternative equity indices. And uh, this title made sense because at the time, smart beta was just not a term at all. And, uh, and so the message there was that uh, the, 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 we saw uh, at the time we saw emergence of a number of uh, alternative index strategies, and they all had different marketing uh, ideas uh, and construction methodologies. And, and so investors struggled what to do with them. They, they, they seemed to have outperformed, and they were cheap, uh, and they could learn the methodologies. But how and why uh, should investors invest in them? Uh, and that's where uh, we made an analysis and showed that these strategies don't tend to benefit from factor exposures. And so the way investors should be thinking about them is through the lens of factor investing. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, recognize the index benefit of these strategies, which is transparency and low cost. Uh, so, uh, so to the degree uh, that these two articles, I'm quite, uh, I'm quite, to degree proud of probably, uh, and then uh, of course I also love a lot of the other articles that I've authored, and I had I was very lucky to have uh, a pretty cool uh, cohort of authors. So, for example, what is quality? The one you mentioned, uh, the more recent ones, uh, reports of values death um, may be greatly exaggerated, uh, and another one, uh, the uh, three. Um, the Alice's Adventures in Factorland or Three Blunders of Fact Investing are probably kind of the more recent ones that I uh, I quite like. Yeah, fantastic. And we'll include a link to any that are available freely online uh, within the episode description so people can search a bit more detail there. Uh, and I think we'll dig into a few of the topics that you mentioned as part of those pieces as well shortly. Uh, but let's move on to a macro roundup, I suppose, to give the context for the rest of the interview, um, I hope to cover inflation, monetary policy, the supply squeeze and recession as well. Uh, but let's start with uh, markets. They're currently awash with cash as a result of unprecedentedly loose monetary policy over the last decade, exacerbated by COVID, as you know. The Fed planning to lift rates by 75 basis points next month. Um, but can you see this having the desired effect uh, in curbing rampant inflation? Well, I sure think uh, that in the short term, uh, it will slightly curb the inflation. But um, I think we uh, we are coming to a place where inflation curbing will be, um, how can I say it? It, it will not be first very dramatic uh, mm-hmm. and uh, to degree it will have uh, limited effectiveness yeah. and perhaps even regulators may not wish to to be too aggressive and they may want to uh, and regulators and uh, both on the monetary side and on the fiscal side may want to settle uh, for somewhat higher uh, medium term maybe potentially even kind of longer term uh, inflation numbers uh, why am i saying that well, because we've um, we've had essentially a more than a decade by now period of access to cheap money. So this period also was uh, quite unique in the sense that uh, we had a big army of uh, baby boomers retiring, and this uh, this group of people or a, gr- a group of population 
wanted to to save for their uh, upcoming retirement. Now, what does it mean going forward? It means going forward that economy got used to having cheap money and probably addicted to having cheap money. Uh, sharp withdrawal uh, means that economy will be in deep troubles. And we, we could chat maybe separately about the chances of recessions, but if they do it abruptly, we're in for a potentially sharp, uh, sharp recession, which in regulators try to, to avoid. And monetary authorities have a double uh, goal of maintaining uh, the inflation and at the same time uh, keeping uh, the economy running. Uh, so that that that's some uh, part part of the view. Mm. Uh, the other element is we have when in history did we have uh, a similar situation uh, where we're running high inflation and the monetary authorities were acting aggressively to curb it. Well, in the early eighties. Mm. Uh, well, how similar is the situation uh, of today to the early eighties? Well, it's distinct in one but very important element. Let's take United States as an example. In the United States, the level, level of state debt to GDP, by, by, and by state I mean uh, the federal debt, uh, the the government debt to GDP, uh, was about twenty five percent, if if I remember correctly, in the east. Mm. Um, today it's hundred uh, percent. And so, uh, what would it mean uh, to have a, a higher levels of interest rates running for for a few years uh, while that uh, with 100% of GDP debt uh, that would mean uh, when the time will come to refinancing the refinancing rate will be at the new interest rate levels uh, and uh, the burden uh, on the uh, government budget for maintaining that debt uh, will materially increase so essentially the very aggressive tightening and keeping high interest rates for a long period of time uh, would naturally assume to the degree we would be bankrupting, bankrupting the government. And that would not be politically very well taken. So basically, from that point of view, the regulators and politicians uh, have their hands tied to a large degree. So basically, uh, they're much more likely to settle for, for heightened inflation and are less likely to be acting so aggressively to maintain the inflation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we um, round off that recession question then, uh, perhaps by trying to answer whether as a result of this extensive monetary policy that you've been through there and the resulting inflation that we've got because of it, is there a soft landing, the other side of this possible? You know, are we conversely in for a deep, protracted recession, more importantly, retail investors will be will be keen to hear how long this might last. Yeah, so uh, I think the monetary authorities will be kind of desperately trying to thread this thin line between, uh, between a hard recession and a steep inflation. Yeah. And so no one has a crystal ball in front of us. Is it possible? I think it is. Uh, and so I think investors should not just think of one scenario, but they should uh, think of a possibility of multiple scenarios. Uh, and, and essentially, uh, in terms of scenarios, we definitely have a scenario of hard lending mm -hmm. and potentially a pretty sharp recession. So the probability of this is not that, not that low. Another possibility, another scenario is uh, a stagflation. Mm. And to me, that scenario actually feels somewhat quite likely. Uh, it's hard for me to express it in probabilities, uh, but it's probably one of the more likely scenarios that, could, that I could see. Yeah. And what do I mean by stagflation? Uh, I think we're quite likely to see a period of elevated uh, and potentially kind of a little bit higher inflation that we, we definitely high inflation got used to in the last decade, but potentially uh, high inflation that we got used to in the last three decades. <laughs> yeah. And uh, at the same time, this inflation uh, is likely to be associated with low or zero or maybe even slightly negative uh, economic growth. Uh, so, uh, and you may call it a soft landing, but it would could be a kind of like a soft landing 
uh, associated also at the same time with uh, elevated inflation. Yeah, okay, I see what you mean. That's a good way to put it. Um, well, the only kind of other aspect of this macro picture we haven't dug into, um, but that we did mention in the intro question was that supply squeeze. Russia has just overtaken Saudi Arabia as China's top oil supplier. Uh, when I checked last week, uh, they purchased a record $7.47 billion of crude oil. To what extent does that render the West's sanctions, again, we discussed in that intro question, relatively redundant? You know, How much of an impact will those sanctions have, bearing in mind that, that China partnership? Um, so again, uh, the, the sanctions have multiple aspects to that. Uh, so... Uh, let me first talk about the sanctions per se aspect. Uh, and your question is, so will it make the the uh, West sanctions redundant where Russia can have the option of switching to countries like China? And they, they, I think they're also, based on numbers I've seen, India is consuming more of Russian oil too. Yeah, yeah. So to the degree, Russia is trying its best to... Uh, to kind of do do best it can and divert its its exports in, in other countries. Uh, having said that, oil is easily transportable and uh, could be smuggled out. From what I understand, a uh, big uh, or significant increase in Russian exports uh, are kind of these gray schemes where uh, ships would come to Russian ports and uh, would blend the oil that they're already carrying with some Russian oil, and then it wouldn't become a purely Russian oil to not to get under sanctions violation problems, but it, it will be like an oil mix. So bottom line is, yes, Russia will be able to, to a degree, uh, reduce uh, the impact on itself with all kinds of measures. Having said that, if uh, countries like Germany would stop buying Russian natural gas, that would be much harder to divert uh, because uh, natural gas can be as easily uh, redirected to other countries because there is a built infrastructure going from um, Siberia and other places in Russia to Germany. And if Germany is buying, getting less of that, that means that Russia is getting less revenue. So from that point of view, I think if the West's effort are well thought out, so they could be uh, quite effective. And, and further, uh, I think countries like um, China will be quite careful in assisting Russia because we remember uh, that just six months ago, it wasn't Russia that was on the radars for uh, much of the rhetorics. It was China. And uh, the trade wars between China and the United States is a very recent memory, and that could easily be rekindled. And if uh, China is going to be too aggressive in helping Russia in this aspect, uh, that could, could rekindle it quite uh, quite easily. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess for those people with exposure to oil um, or you know derivatives of oil, oil manufacturers and suppliers, etc. Where do you see the price headed in the short to medium term? Will this see the price go lower because there is slightly more demand or is that too, too narrow a way to view this, view this market? Well, uh, I think definitely the, the more Russia could supply uh, of its oil to the global markets, uh, the lower the price would be. I think the prices have gone up significantly already in uh, the realization and anticipation of future reduction in the supply. And uh, if Russia is able to avoid, uh, can beat those expectations and smuggle some of that supply out, uh, that that would mean uh, lower prices than it would otherwise have been. Uh, having said that, it, it's not getting anywhere easier to continue doing it. Uh, so whatever the uh, damage, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And um, the longer the the war continues, the higher is the likelihood uh, that uh, more sanctions will be placed. And as I said earlier, so if, for example, Germany would stop purchasing Russian mm. gas, I think it will have a very direct and sharp effect on, on the oil prices. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, that's clear. Uh, and I think that nicely sets up the rest of the interview because I think we've established the, the macro context. 
Uh, we've established some macroeconomic trends. We've talked about monetary policy and inflation and recession as well. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Let's dig into equity markets now. We've got a lot of equity investors listening in. Um, and I'm keen to focus on the, uh, the growth to value rotation and kind of that conundrum that a lot of uh, portfolio managers and uh, individual investors will be wrestling with at the moment. Um, conventional wisdom dictates, of course, that when interest rates rise, value stocks outperform growth. But to what extent is that theory flawed? What, what does that rationale fail to comprehend? Uh, well, to a degree, I don't think that it's totally flawed. Uh, I think uh, the interest rates uh, linked to equity um, has uh, has a pretty solid effect in the sense that uh, we could uh, we could look at equity as the cash flow stream uh, generated by these companies that we need to discount to the present. So, to a degree, uh, there there is of course some uncertainty to this equity stream. Uh, and we need to make some uh, assumptions about growth rates for different companies, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the, in the end of the day, we need to discount the stream at some uh, interest rate, uh, at some discount rate. And um, interest rate should be a, a part of that. So uh, so from that point of view, theoretically, at least, there is a pretty strong uh, argument for why uh, equity should be uh, reacting to changes uh, in the discount rates. And uh, when we are looking at different types of equities, specifically companies with more cash flows in the upfront, kind of closer to today, cyclical companies, uh, often cyclical companies, often companies, well, often this would be value companies. Uh, and then versus growth companies, which are growing faster and have more of their cash flow uh, in the future. Uh, so uh, supposedly, uh, growth companies uh, should the discount rate uh, would imply the difference in discount changes in discount rate would uh, imply that uh, given the difference in duration that growth companies uh, should benefit from falling rates uh, should appreciate higher uh, more than value companies and vice versa when the interest rates go up basically growth companies should potentially decline faster. Yeah. Now that that's uh, an argument, and we did see, uh, we kind of see some of that playing mm-hmm. out. Now, having said that, uh, when we're taking that um, that assertion uh, or that theory to the test, uh, we we see very little evidence uh, that that happens. So it's uh, it's very hard to disentangle what's the real discount rate the market is applying. Uh, there is a real component to it, and there is a nominal component to it. So from that point of view, it's quite weak. And perhaps uh, part of the reason why it's also weaker uh, than we would have expected is because different companies may uh, may have different levels of internal leverage. And um, specifically, value companies tend to have uh, more leverage. They t- rely more uh, on borrowed capital. Uh, and for these companies, interest rates become also a part of the expense. And so when uh, interest rate drops, uh, the interest rates uh, drop and therefore more cash flow can go to the equity investors. Uh, so, uh, And perhaps that's one of the reasons why we don't see such a strong uh, link. Finally, uh, so let me just conclude here that more recently, we did see uh, that playing out at least anecdotally. Uh, we had a period of low and declining interest rates for the last 15 years, and value did poorly while growth did much better. And now we're starting to see the yeah. opposite. Uh, so we know that markets evolve, uh, and maybe markets are becoming more efficient in the sense that they're uh, they're starting to react uh, and act more like theory would uh, would tell them to. Uh, or what we would expect from a theory. And so going forward, potentially we should expect more of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I guess, you know, my question was simply there to pull out, I suppose, the idea, which I think you've superbly elaborated on there, that it is more nuanced than perhaps theory gives it credit for. But this idea that they are becoming more efficient and theory will come more to the fore is is really interesting and, and will hopefully make it not simpler for investors, but potentially 
slightly easier to understand. And I've read, um, I think it was as part of an article that you were quoted in, uh, it cited some research that showed that by mid-2020, value stocks were the cheapest they'd ever been, um, with prices 13 times lower than the top 30% of growth stocks. So cheaper on a relative basis to, you know, to that 30% of growth stocks. Um, it talks about that potentially being a tipping point at which the relative cheapness of those stocks became hard to ignore. Uh, have we seen that play out uh, you know, since then over the next sort of two years or one and a half years? Um, and are, are we likely to see that, that trend continue uh, towards the end of 2022? Um, so we definitely have seen uh, that play out. So again, let me give a little bit more color. By definition, value companies are cheaper than growth companies. So let's say if we were to take price to book as a definition uh, and select 30% cheapest into value portfolio and 30% most expensive by price to book into growth portfolio, the average uh, over the last 60 odd years uh, discount of value to growth was about 1 to 5. So the price to book of value companies was about five times lower than price to book of growth companies. But that's just average number. Yeah. Uh, there were times uh, when value was relatively more expensive. Uh, so, for example, during, uh, during some points in the late 70s or mid 70s, mm -hmm. uh, value was trading at just one third valuation, but one to five. Uh, and then there were periods uh, where, for a long time, I thought that I'd never see such uh, such uh, exuberant uh, valuation dispersion in the market, uh, which was the tech bubble. Um, and uh, during that time, uh, the difference, uh, the the ratio was uh, as high as nine. Uh, and I thought for a long time, I thought, uh, looking at many of these numbers, I thought that I would never see tech bubble repeating. I would never see this <laughs> exuberant valuation dispersion ever in my uh, professional career. Uh, but, well, here we are uh, in, the, uh, in the late summer 2020, uh, that valuation uh, dispersion, so the ratio of value to growth was 1 to 13. Uh, and that was even, uh, so value was priced even cheaper than it, uh, on the relative basis than it was during the of the tech bubble. Yep. Uh, and so, of course, there was a lot of uncertainty around COVID, around vaccines, around the length of the uh, lockdowns generated by COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But just at a first glimpse of the positive news, right, when it was starting to become clear that uh, certain vaccines uh, showed solid evidence that they can be effective, that's where we're starting to see that value start mean reverting and start mean reverting pretty fast. Now, it got slowed down in 21 as first Delta came in and then Omicron uh, later in the year. Uh, but I think this year we've seen it start unraveling in scale mm -hmm. and value this year outperformed handily growth. Now, where are we today? Well, mm. value is still incredibly cheap. Now, it's not as cheap as it used to be in 2020, of course. And it's barely past the point uh, of where it was during the height of the tech bubble. Uh, but even today, value uh, companies are still quite cheap and they have a lot of potential to continue mean reverting. So that's uh, the phase we're in today. Yeah, I was going to um, bring that up at the end of your answer because it does seem it's a slightly less clear picture now given that despite the outperformance in materials and energy, obviously, that we've already discussed, we are seeing some traditional value players like industrials and some companies from uh, the financial sector as well. We've seen some of those underperform. So is there a question of, yes, predominantly, as you say, on average, uh, value is still uh, relatively cheap uh, versus growth, but could investors be best served by focusing more on quality value companies? Uh, and I'm, of course, I'm asking that because you have written papers on on what the definition of quality is. So I'm quite keen to dig into exactly what you what you think a quality stock is, or at least how you would define it. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe actually, before we go into the quality aspect, I think one important notion uh, which is often missed when we discuss value investing is understanding how value adds value. <laughs> yep. 
So, of course, value doesn't always outperform. And value brings high return, not because you're investing in industries like industrials or energy, which, by the way, are not always cheap. But uh, the key driver of value premium is this rebalancing premium. Uh, That's what Fama and French called migration, Mm -hmm. uh, where certain stocks uh, just migrate into value. And uh, that's where a value investor buys them. And then these stocks tend to uh, move out of value towards the more median to uh, growth buckets. And then some new value companies would show up. So uh, this uh, steady rebalancing is the key driver of the value premium. And so part of the answer to your question is, do we see uh, slowing down well, I think as we, we've started seeing some inversion, markets are also very volatile. Mm-hmm. And what investors should do now is rebalance into the companies that are still cheaper. And some of the companies have, may have become uh, newly cheap. And maybe potentially some of the old uh, growth companies have become cheap now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, for example, Qualcomm could be an example where it's trading now. I haven't looked recently, but I think it was trading recently at like P of 12. Mm. That's pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah. And a number of other companies. So this rebalancing into what has become recently cheap is probably the key element that investors should, should look for uh, in their investment process, basically rebalancing to new cheap opportunities and, and look for them in reverse. Mm. Now, to your aspect of quality, and I apologize for a long answer, uh, but of course, uh, when companies become cheap, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that they're good investments. Nope. Companies can be cheap for a reason, and they can stay cheap for a very long time for a reason. If the company is close to bankruptcy and uh, in a dying business, uh, underperforms, kind of the things that we call bad quality, so low profitability uh, type of companies, uh, these, these are the companies that tend not to uh, not to rebound back, and investors are uh, would probably be well placed to try to avoid these uh, perennial value and uh, fallen angels type of companies. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I suppose yeah, for for retail investors, if there was a kind of checklist um, that we were able to put together to help them identify, I suppose, what a quality business looks like. You talk a lot about, again, in your paper, sort of uh, the attributes and the criteria that make up these sorts of companies. What sorts of things specifically should retail investors be looking out for? So among the uh, traits that are associated with better performance are profitability. And we could be looking at different types of profitability. Mm -hmm. So gross profitability, so gross profits to assets ratio, for example, or ROE, ROA. Um, return on uh, investment, invested capital. Uh, th- these are all kind of uh, good measures of identifying solid businesses. So when, when you have a business trading at low valuation, which is profitable by multiple profitability measures, that makes for a good quality buy. Mm. Uh, another aspect is accounting quality and specifically looking at variables related to accruals. Uh, so if a company has increases in accruals or high uh, accruals relative to their other fundamentals, yeah. high net operating assets, that tends to be indicating uh, that uh, the management of the company is manipulating the uh, the books uh, and that some of those earnings that investors are seeing may not be sustainable. So best, best avoided. Uh, and then finally, um, many investors tend to look at growing companies and uh, and think that growth is good. Mm-hmm. But it's to a degree, it's good to see where that growth is coming from. Uh, if a company is issuing aggressively, uh, issuing new equity or issuing new debt, that tends to be also associated with bad quality because these are the companies where management tends to be more focusing probably on empire building than the um, natural growth of the business. Mm. And uh, in the process, kind of if the management is trying to do that, 
uh, more often than not, uh, the management tries to advertise aggressively the stock of the company rather than, let's say, the product of the company. And uh, when the stock uh, pri- uh, that can lead to the overpricing of the stock uh, so that the management can sell the stock at elevated prices uh, to faster grow the empire faster or higher prices mm. that equity investors are paying for the stock means the return going forward uh, are going to be uh, worse. But also another aspect, uh, probably not contradicting to that uh, element, is if the company management is focusing more on empire building than uh, building a solid kind of conservative business growing naturally, well, empire building is not a good trade from a governance perspective. And so... Um, so again, it, it can mean that investors can can be disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes complete sense and, and really helpful, actually. Uh, really actionable advice. And just to make it even less abstract for listeners, I wondered whether there was perhaps as a historic example of, of an individual company, or if you prefer just to talk at sector level of, of a type of business, I suppose, that uh, exhibited the majority of the attributes you've talked through there. Uh, is there one that springs to mind? Um, so interestingly, um, so on the positive side, um, many of the uh, good companies that are high on their brand values, um, so companies like, like Coca-Cola, for example, or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, PepsiCola or, or Calic, um, these are the type of companies that have big brands. They, these brands protect their margins. They're not in the business of growing the, uh, their companies too aggressively. Mm. Uh, and because of that, they're more focusing on the core business rather than selling the stock. Uh, that, that makes the basically the uh, fundamentals quite solid, yet investors are not overpaying for them. So that's, that's kind of on the positive side. Yeah. On, in terms of the examples of the opposite of that, I guess companies like Yahoo, for example, scored historically quite low in terms of the profitability mm. uh, and fast growth, which was fueled by stock issuance and investors in the end got quite disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, another example probably is well, Tesla. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tesla has probably been uh, part of the example. Uh, now, Tesla, of course, is a very interesting play. It's a very interesting company in the sense that they are doing a lot of real and tangible innovation. And perhaps some of that innovation can be hard to replicate so that uh, many other companies, many other traditional automakers are very likely not going to totally outcompete Tesla. Having said that, uh, Elon Musk is uh, one of his probably uh, very strong tools is his Twitter account. Mm. Uh, and he is quite uh, willing to use his Twitter account to, to help his stock prices go up. Now, of course, he periodically he would mention that he thinks his stock uh, is overpriced. But I think if you count the number of uh, tweets that eventually lead to the hikes in the price of Tesla versus the ones that lead to the drop down in it, I bet you that the number will be hugely dominated by the positive ones. Uh, and so... Elon Musk, respect the guy a lot. But I think one thing that he is very strong at is marketing. He is a, and particularly stock marketing. He's a stock marketing machine. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so that can lead to overpricing and investors can get, uh, can get burned. Yeah, absolutely. And that characterization of, of Musk as a uh, stock marketing machine uh, definitely resonates with me. I'm sure it will do with a lot of the uh, listeners as well. Um, well, I think as a final question, then we've talked about how investors might seek to find quality, you know, well-valued businesses in what is a tricky environment. I think it would be safe to say to find good equity opportunities. Um, but if a protracted recession is indeed around the corner, which obviously we discussed earlier, should investors be looking to reduce their equity exposure across the board, you know, on average? that be the prudent uh, the prudent way to go uh, in this current environment, do you think? 
Well, again, I, I think what investors should look at is uh, the valuations of different asset classes mm-hmm. and to look at how different asset classes are priced today. Uh, and if we are in the rising rates environment, what will these asset classes do in the rising rates environment? So moving out of equity would mean that they would be moving into bonds, for example. Yeah. So equity and bonds are the two largest segments of the market. And bonds are priced or have been priced quite cheaply. Mm-hmm. And it's unlikely that we're going to see huge declines in the interest rates. Uh, <laughs> fighting fire with gas is an interesting concept. And, uh, so, but I, I don't think that central banks are looking to print more money anytime soon. At least it's for sure not going to help with inflation. No. So bottom line is bonds in the rising interest rate environment will not provide that protection that investors may want. Mm. So that, that's one. Second, also, uh, we still see, uh, when looking inside equity, we still see that very big dispersion. And when investors are looking at equity, they're looking at market in general. But market has different segments in it. And so basically where I'm leading to is there are segments of the equities specifically value, which is still quite reasonably and cheaply priced. Yeah. And um, what that means is uh, when, when they have these uh, low valuations where everything else is priced expensively, low valuations are more likely than not to provide protection uh, and more likely than not to provide growth opportunities. Further, uh, many of these cheaper companies, also more cyclical companies and companies that are more likely to benefit from from the rising inflation. So from that point of view, uh, actually, investors may may get both protection uh, from the inflation uh, risks and uh, benefit with high returns from just overall lower valuations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really interesting way to look at it and a, a nice message. I think to end the main body of the interview on. Um, hopefully, you'll bear with us for a, for another couple of minutes. We've got our quick fire question round now, and this is just a more generic list of questions, I suppose, that we ask all of our guests, uh, and just a light-hearted way to end the episode. Uh, feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word. The first question is: What is the most frequent mistake investors make? Do you think? Probably two mistakes. First, they underinvest. Investors need to invest more. Uh, and second is um, invest with a re- rear view mirror uh, instead of forward looking. Basically, many investors tend to think that past recent return is indication that it will continue going forward. And they tend to ignore in this process the valuation. And if past uh, recent high return means uh, that the valuations are high, then it's, it can lead to bad, uh, bad outcomes. So uh, the solution to that uh, would be to look at what what is cheaply priced and uh, potentially that cheaper priced assets could be a little bit or sometimes quite uncomfortable to hold. Uh, but if you're a longer term investor, it's that uh, uncomfort uh, that tends to pay uh, on the markets. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly that first point about being underinvested, that's, that's a, a huge problem in the UK uh, in particular um, and one that We've definitely heard before, so completely agree on that front. And uh, our second question uh, is, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers or websites, for example? Well, I try to diversify my sources. Mm. Uh, And so um, I like reading just more recent news, so Mm. regular um, sources like Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. Mm. Uh, I read uh, journals. Uh, I read academic journals. Uh, and practitioner journals. And then uh, finally, uh, I find conferences uh, and some of them may be, may be a little bit too boring for most people, but uh, some of them can be quite exciting and entertaining. So especially having discuss- listening to discussions, uh, uh, that, that can be quite interesting. Sometimes uh, I learn more from discussions uh, than from the uh, main presentation of the conference. Yeah, completely agree. Often debate brings more interesting insights rather than just one person publishing their own perspective. And conferences isn't something actually someone uh, has mentioned uh, as an answer to that question. So that's that's really useful to know. 
The third question is, what is the most memorable moment from your career to date? So if you could pick just one moment that just stands out for whatever reason, perhaps it was particularly positive or negative. Is there anything that springs to mind? I, I struggle to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's not the easiest one. I, I think uh, probably the continued understanding that I, I have a lot of good co-authors to collaborate. Mm. It, it's not like a one-off event, but it's a nice place uh, where to appreciate. And, and I'm, I've been very lucky in my career to have had that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, I think that's a really good answer. And um, the, the penultimate question sort of builds on that theme, I suppose. If you were able to be able to go back in time and give your younger self a, a tip, one bit of advice, what, what would that be? Perhaps two. So uh, I think, uh, well, I probably followed it, but uh, build your hard skill and soft skills. Uh, <laughs> and I know that it's a very broad answer, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, mm. kind of, uh, building the hard skills in terms of uh, coding, uh, statistics, and uh, kind of the knowledge to analyze uh, the the research and research findings uh, is quite important in finance. And, and then soft skills, I think, uh, being able to uh, to talk to people, to build good relationships, has helped quite a bit in my career. And so the, the more my career progresses, the more I treasure the opportunity to work with people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's often those softer skills that can be overlooked. So I think it's a really good, really good answer. And uh, our final question is, uh, if you could narrow it down to one thing, what do you think an investor's best source of alpha is? Uh, just how, how do the great investors derive their outperformance if you could just pick one thing? Rebalance into what what is cheaper and potentially avoided by other investors. Mm -hmm. uh, if you see something uh, that that is looking extremely scary to the rest of the investors, well, be careful. Uh, it, it could be it, it could be avoided for a good reason. So do your home. Uh, but if uh, there is a decent chance the rest of the market is overreacting and market tends to overreact, it can be a good opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And uh, a lovely message to end the interview on. So that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Vitaly. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.